Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast is all about you and helping you reach the big goals you have in your life. And what next steps are you going to take to get there? I'm your host, Darren Johnson, and welcome to episode 41. I am glad that you're here, and I think you'll be glad as well because, look, every podcast episode we have a chance to meet some really interesting guests, and this is no exception. We are definitely going to enjoy this one with Jeremy Utley. Jeremy is one of the world's leading experts in innovation. He's a director of executive education at Stanford's renowned Hasso Plattner Institute of Design, otherwise known as the D School. Now, his courses, they have been experienced by nearly a million students of innovation worldwide. He advises corporate leaders on how to embed these methods and mindsets of design thinking into their organizations. And he works with professionals to cultivate a robust personal creative practice and mindset. He studies innovation in large companies and startups. He advises CEOs and senior leadership teams in the United States and Europe and Asia on growth and innovation strategy. He's a prolific blogger and a podcaster and the co-author of a brand new book. It is phenomenal. It's called Idea Flow, The Only Business Metric That Matters. Now, have you ever experienced what I would call low idea flow? Have you ever been in that quiet conference room with a half-filled whiteboard and you know you need to come up with an idea? Or maybe you're sitting there at home and you're thinking, man, if I could just come up with that one big idea, it would change everything. If any of that resonates with you, well, buckle up because Jeremy's insights will help you unleash your own creative potential as well as the potential of others. He is here. We're glad to have him. Episode 41 is ready. Here, everyone, is Mr. Jeremy Utley. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. It is really good having you here. Thanks for having me, Darren. It's a, it's a joy to be here. All right, Jeremy, I've got a lot to ask you. We got a lot to talk about. You're an author of a brand new book called Idea Flow, and we're going to get into that here in just a minute. But you clearly have done a lot in your life. You heard a little bit of my introduction of you. And how did you land in your current role? I mean, what, what's been your journey so far? You know, it's been, it would have been impossible to plan, as I think anybody <laughs> with an interesting kind of backstory uh, would say. But I started my career in financial analysis, doing stock pitches and things like that to a small equity fund and quickly realized that that wasn't for me. Well, I, I could backtrack further and say I started my career as a uh, lawnmower. Uh, <laughs> which, I didn't expect that. Yeah, I, I mowed lawns, you know, all through high school, babysitter, uh, worked at Red Bull as a student brand manager in college, was okay. a waiter. Um, but then my first kind of, you know, uh, worked at Chick-fil-A, by the way, as a, as a drive-through. Uh, I was an employee of the year back, at, back in the day. But, you know, my professional career, I think, really took off when I was a management consultant. And I, I, didn't, um, I didn't find what I enjoyed until I was a couple years into that career, which was kind of primary research, I think is what you would call it, or almost ethnographic research. And I kind of stumbled into that and uh, went to business school at Stanford, as, as you typically do if you're in management consulting, you spend a couple of years and you go to business school, come back for a couple of years. So I was kind of on that cycle and I had plans to return there. So during my summer between years of business school at Stanford, I could be a little bit more entrepreneurial in my in my internship because I wasn't trying to you know nail down a long-term job. I thought I already had a job. Yeah. So I ended up working at this startup in India, of all places, in Delhi. And when I was there... 
I became aware of design as an approach to problem solving, as an approach to innovation. And it just floored me. And while I was there, I met a couple of designers who suggested I spend some time at this newfound D school at Stanford, which I wasn't really familiar with. I knew a little bit, but you know, didn't know anybody who had done anything there. And so came to check it out and was amazed to discover, oh, this is what I've been doing when I've been doing these kind of, when I'm hanging out at a biker bar or when I'm in the <laughs> convenience store in North Carolina, I'm kind of doing ethnographic research. I didn't, right? nobody at my consulting firm called it that. We didn't call it design, you know, <laughs> but I had, I had kind of, I found my people in a way. My wife is a fashion designer and she, she had all sorts of techniques and methods that I didn't really have language for you know she needed to go get inspiration she'd go to paris or new york and i call that a boondoggle you know it's like i'm getting you're getting macarons you know but for her she was getting inspired by colors and textures and patterns and things like that and inspiration doesn't fit in a spreadsheet and you know i had done management consulting i had done financial analysis and I, i love excel as a tool And yet so much of what I was learning about how to interface with people and how to learn about people's needs and problems and be inspired in the world, it didn't fit my kind of spreadsheet orientation towards the world. And so I was fortunate to be invited to take what was supposed to be a one-year fellowship in 2009, a one-year fellowship at the Design Institute before going back to consulting. And in that year, it became clear to me, it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be honest with myself if I stayed in that profession. And so 13 years later, I continue to teach at the D school. I've been leading our work with professionals and executives for the last 12 years or so, but the, it, it, I couldn't have predicted it. I couldn't have planned it. Um, My life was pleasantly derailed. I like to say. That sounds cool. Looking back and say, how did, how did this happen? All of a sudden here you are, right? It's a combination of a lot of different moves and, and, and it sounds like you're a great example of that. What happened? What, well, so you're not a creative, you were not the kid growing up in, in high school and college that was theater major musicians, more more of those types of interests. Right. No, no. You know, I remember when I was in first grade uh, or, you know, somewhere in elementary school, Michael Keaton's Batman was a big deal. And uh, I would draw Batmobiles for my classmates for a quarter. (laughs) But I don't think maybe it was fifth grade. I can't remember. It was sometime in the early days. But uh, I can remember, you know, thinking, wow. That's kind of cool, but no, no, I mean, no artistic inclinations or anything like that. But I think that's part of the, that's part of the problem actually is a very narrow definition of creativity. You know, we, we have, you know, some people think of creative industries and non-creative industries or creative organizations and non-creative organizations or creative departments, creative people. And that does a disservice to the art of problem solving. Ultimately, creativity is about solving problems well. My favorite definition of creativity comes from a seventh grader in Ohio. She says, creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. (laughs) And that's very simple. It's actually a profound, we can get into it later if you want. It's a profound definition cognitively for a number of reasons, but it's not about art. It's not about drawing. It's not about any of those things that we kind of overly associate with creativity. It's actually an inclination towards generating volume. And that's a muscle that anybody, whether they're in art or accounting, can flex just as mindfully if they become aware of it. Yeah. Well, the name of your book, Idea Flow, you, you go so far, the subtitle is The Only Business Metric That Matters. And uh, great book, by the way. And I'm, I'm reading it right now. Uh, and you, you emphasize 
you know, uh, early and often that it's about, it's about quantity of ideas, which is yeah. counter, counterintuitive for me. If, if you don't mind, tell me a little bit more of that. It seems like it's a bedrock principle of, of your D school and your background. It, it's one of the most unexpected findings of the literature is that the single greatest variable that affects the quality of one's output is actually the quantity of output. And this is true not only in the arts. If you look, Dr. Dean Keith Simonson, he recently won a Lifetime Achievement Award from Mensa, the organization that awards IQ points. Okay. He's a pretty sharp guy. Yeah. Yeah. And he conducted a longitudinal study of breakthroughs across domains, not only in the arts and like literature and, and, painting and things like that. But he also studied scientists and inventors and discovery. And what he found was that the most highly correlated variable with, with spectacular output is actually the volume of output. Meaning the, the, the scientist who's my, most likely to have a Nobel prize actually has the most papers, for example. And if you look at the, if you want to look at the point in their life where they're most likely to do their most breakthrough work, it's when they do the most work. Not this isn't, by the way, advocating uh, workaholism. I don't mean to be advocating that. But yeah. what I mean to say is for a lot of people, when they think of ideas or the, and the, the, the task of coming up with ideas, they think of good ideas. You know, everywhere I go in the world, whether it's Tokyo or Tel Aviv or Topeka, doesn't matter, despite the cultural differences of those geographies. If I say, I'm going to help you come up with ideas, everyone replies the same way. How do you come up with a good idea? Is, is that the response? Always. How do you come up with a good idea? I did this in my grad student class the other day at Stanford. I said, hey, I want to say this on a podcast. Is this true? I, if I tell you guys, I'm going to help you come up with ideas. How do you respond? And no kidding, this kid from India raises his hand and goes, how do you come up with a good idea? <laughs> I go, you couldn't have said it more perfectly. Thank you. On cue. The point is, we the, the notion of quality is, is, is um, inseparable from the very idea of ideas, right? When we think of ideas, we think of good ideas. And that's part of our challenge because the truth is, instead of thinking of good, we should be thinking of more. Hmm. And it's not just a semantic difference. If you start to orient towards volume, it affects how you collaborate. It affects how you interface with the market. It, it affects how you, uh, you know, document your own process. And very few people are oriented towards quality, but you know who are? world-class innovators, regardless of their field, world-class. I see it again and again and again when I'm talking, you know, I run a program at Stanford called Masters of Creativity, and we interface with a bunch of folks across disciplines. And it's a common refrain. People are output oriented. They're generating lots of volume and they don't have a good sense of which one is going to hit, but they know that doing the work is going to result in success. Hmm. So you have studied, as you just said, the, a lot of these breakthrough innovators or throughout history and uh, currently that, that, we're, yeah, that are you know, part of our, our world. What is it? What is it that sets them apart? I know it's not a fair question, but a couple things. What do they do differently that the rest of us maybe don't? Well, breakthrough, what makes breakthrough thinkers different is how they think. Very simply. Yeah. But they think in a way that can be, that is a learnable skill. We actually put a bonus chapter for free on our website, ideaflow.design called how to think like Bezos and Jobs, because they're two exemplary breakthrough thinkers and anybody can go and grab that for free. But the point is, if you look at somebody like Jeff Bezos, 
he wrote down idea. They, you know, colleagues of his at DE Shaw, the hedge fund he worked at before he started Amazon, said he was constantly writing down ideas in his notebook as if they would evaporate if he didn't capture them. <laughs> you know, how do people, how do creative people work? How do breakthrough thinkers work? They're capturing ideas. I talked to a New York Times bestselling author the other day. We're in the middle of a conversation. He goes, Oh, that's cool. Number 417. And I said, Number 417? He said, yeah, it's my, it's the 417th idea I've had this year. I, I oh. keep track of them. I go, oh, that's cool. And then fast forward about two months later, we're, we're in another conversation and somebody said something and he goes, oh, I love that number 1192. Gosh. I said, wait, John, do you mean to tell me that you've had 700 ideas between the time we talked and now? And he said, yeah, you remember that? That's funny. But point is, they're aware of ideas and they value ideas. And if you value ideas, one of the simplest things you can do is write them down. This isn't mm. profound. It, it's profound in its simplicity, right? You keep a notebook. Our, my mentor, David Kelly, who is the founder of IDEO, the founder of Stanford's D School, he's good friends with the late comedian Robin Williams. And he says, Robin carried a yellow legal pad everywhere, everywhere. And he said, we'd be in the middle of a you know lunchtime discussion and he'd be taking notes. And he said, many times, those notes found their way into his bit later oh, that night nice. at a stand-up club. That's nice. But you, that's you, so anyway, so that's, that's very simple. So that's kind of one thing. The other thing I'd say is what makes breakthrough thinkers different is they're aware of inputs. They're very thoughtful about inputs. And this is for artists, artists get it. I mentioned my wife's a fashion designer. They seek inspiration for folks who aren't creatively inclined, they don't really think about it. You know, as I said, I don't know where to put that in the spreadsheet. So I don't think about it. If you say, you know, what's, what's your inspiration? I'm thinking of those cheesy posters in corporate hallways that say like teamwork and everybody's like, you know, bungee jumping together. Right. I've got or, several of them. I, I could, I could flip the camera around. I could show them, show them. Yeah. So like, that's what we think of when we think of inspiration. Right. But, but what, how I've come to define inspiration that's different, Darren, is inspiration is the disciplined pursuit of unexpected input. Nice. It's the disciplined pursuit of unexpected input. And the reason that that's so important is because it's the surprises. It's the things that are unexpected that stimulate our imaginations, that stimulate fresh thinking. And yet most of us spend most of our days insulated from any fresh input whatsoever. And what designers know, what creative people know is if they want a different output, don't you need to look in the right end of the telescope. And most people, if they think about creativity or innovation, they're thinking about the output. And what really breakthrough thinkers know is actually the inputs to my thinking are what matter. Mm -hmm. So for example, Steve Jobs, when he's frustrated by the early design efforts of the Macintosh, you know what he did? No. He went to Macy's and he starts walking around the appliance aisle and he sees a Cuisinart mixer and he bought it and he took it back to the design team and he said, it should look like this. <laughs> did he really? Yeah. That story. Yeah, he really did. But the point is, this is the instinct to go out and get fresh input is a deeply embedded instinct for a creative individual. I, I taught a class with a hip hop artist, a Grammy award winning hip hop artist named Lecrae. And Lecrae is an incredible talent. We taught a short course together a couple of years ago. We're giving our students at Stanford an assignment to go out into the world to get inspiration because we think it's so important. And I can see this like blank stare on our students' faces. It was almost like a time warp mirror, right? I could see myself hearing, I could see my, my own face hearing my wife say she's going to go to Paris for inspiration. It's just like this dumb look, like, what are you talking about? And all these students are going, inspiration? And I said, Lecrae, how do you think about inspiration? 
And he said, as only a hip hop artist could do, he dropped a bar. He goes, inspiration's a discipline. Mm. And I realized in that moment for most of these students, it's not even on their radar as an option, let alone a routine in their life. But breakthrough thinkers are, are disciplined about seeking unexpected input because they know it stimulates fresh thinking. Anyway, I could go on and on and on, but these are a couple of examples, being thoughtful about input, being, being diligent to capture and document ideas, reviewing that stuff. They're basic mindsets and they're basic shifts that you can make that actually have a profound impact on the outputs of your thinking. Your book is so great because there are, it's broken up into two sections. The first one is innovate and the second is elevate and just chapter by chapter walks you through how to then build this into your, your life. And for those who are listening in, this does have application clearly to organizations and you as a leader, but also to you on your personal life also, which was a surprise. You know, it's funny, Darren, as my mom said the same thing. She, she called me the other day. She goes, she got an early advanced copy of the book and she goes, hey, this isn't a business book. <laughs> and I go, well, what do you mean? She goes, you're talking about leaders and CEOs and business. And she said, you know, I'm not a business person. I'm not a leader, but... I'm finding this very helpful in my life. And I said, mom, I appreciate the compliment, but you have to have a target user. You know, it can't be for everybody, right? But absolutely, it's, it's hopefully it transcends domains and boundaries and identities as well. So you got your mom's stamp of approval. It's huge. I mean, this is, this is what you live for, right? It's great. I love it. I can, I, I canceled my therapist appointment because I know I'm, I'm in good shape now. <laughs> I like that. You know, um, so I'm reading about this book, right? And it's been called the best business book this year, which, okay, well, maybe it's not a business book or maybe it is. The point is it applies. It applies. You, sp- you talked about inputs. Well, uh, here's, here's a line from the book. You don't innovate in the pickle business by eating cucumbers all day. The more distant the origins of your inputs, the more valuable and interesting the resulting combinations will be. Mm. Well, look, I'm in, I've been in corporate America a lot of years, meeting area, and, but in the, in the span of 30 minutes, I think my highest throw count was, I wanna say it was like 20, 20 wow. times in 30 minutes. So my, my challenge to you respectfully is, Jeremy, I can't find the time to get creative. Don't you understand? I'm in an environment that's an open open workspace and there's noise and there's, how do I wrestle with that if I'm listening to this podcast thinking, okay, I want to be more creative. I want to create some of these habits, but my environment is not conducive to it. So coach me and maybe others yeah. who are thinking the same. No, it's a great question. It's one that I've, it's funny. I've been hearing it a lot. And so I, I really appreciate that. I, a couple of thoughts immediately. One, it doesn't have to take a lot of time. So to be creative, again, using this simple seventh graders definition, which I love, it's doing more than the first thing you think of. So if you want to practice being creative, what do you need to do? More than the first thing you think of. And you're practicing, right? Just like you take free throws, just like you play your scales, you've got, a, you've got an email that you're writing and you, you get to the, you know, you hit who it's to. And then what I do is I hit tab and it goes to the subject. Ordinarily, I type the first thing that comes to my mind and I move on, Right. That is a decidedly uncreative moment in my life. What could I do if I want to practice my creativity? Try five. What are five different subject lines? Might that take me all of one minute? Might it be like taking a free throw break or like doing one set of scales on the piano? Yeah. It's not now. And and the point is, it's imminently practicable, practicable in that moment. If I see this 
subject line is an opportunity for a creative flex. You know, I mean, my, like my sister, I remember growing up, she played volleyball and we'd go to the grocery store. My mom would say, Hey, Rachel, would you grab a jug of milk? And she, she'd go to the, you know, to the refrigerator and, you know, imagine this is the jug, you know what she did, right? She pulled it out of the refrigerator and then she did curls on the way back to the, on the way back to the cart, right? Why? Because to an athlete, every gallon of milk's a dumbbell, right? Right. She's got that athletic mindset. And if I had said, Rachel, your coach isn't here. You aren't wearing your knee pads. Where's your volleyball? You know, she'd be like, well, she would say it anyway. You're an idiot, Jeremy, right? <laughs> but to the people who have an athletic mindset, it's like every time I got a jug of milk in my hand, I'm going to do a dumbbell curl, yeah. right? The same thing when someone has a, a mindset around building their creative muscle, all of a sudden the world starts offering gallons of milk. You know, and so to me, it's it can be simple. It doesn't. Have, it's not like I need to book a you know a silent meditation retreat at a Buddhist Zen center to tap into my creativity. It's like that's great. That probably has merits. I've personally never done it, and I don't feel creatively stunted. Okay, yeah. so I don't think it's a requirement. It's a nice to have. It's not a must have. That's one thing. The second thing I would say is that being said, making time is is a undervalued priority. I think. In today's workplace, the way I pictured it, and this just came to me the other day, but I almost picture, you know, like uh, my, if you, if you picture your computer screen as the bottom of the Tetris board, <laughs> we get incoming requests. And what do we do? We think the job is how do I fit everything in? And I right. switch this thing around and I twist this thing around. And, and I think that my job is to get everything in. And then I look at my calendar for the week and I go, I don't have any time to be creative this week. And uh, to me, one thing that comes to my mind is, okay, two things there. One, since when did I have to fit everything in? And two, if I take as a premise, I've got to fit everything in. Well, what if I put some bigger blocks in three right. weeks from now where I can turn the, the cubes and fit them sideways and where they fit around my priorities? I, I mean, we were, we were leading a capacity building organization. Uh, Sorry, we we're leading a capacity building initiative inside of a big tech company. And one of the heads of innovation or the heads of IT, a woman named Anne in Ireland, we were giving a simple assignment to experiment. We said, hey, in the next couple of weeks, we want you to run an experiment. And two weeks had passed, came back on the line. We said, Anne, tell us about your experiment. And she said, well, I haven't done it yet. I said, and I mean, we aren't talking, this isn't like, you don't need Bunsen burners and beakers. We're not talking like get into a lab. We're talking AB test and email, right? Do something. And she said, Jeremy, it's Wednesday morning here in Dublin. I'm on meeting number 32 this week. Oh, no. And I realized, I said, one, I totally get it. You're right. I said, what's the rest of your week look like, Ann? She said, it's terrible. I said, what about the next week? Terrible. Oof. What about the next week? Oh, it, there's a little bit of daylight there. I said, Anne, write your future self a love note. Okay. Go into your calendar three weeks from now, pick a 30 minute block and, and subject line, run the blank experiment. <laughs> and then I said, oh, now, and go one more week out, three weeks out, review blank experiment data. I said, you've just written a love note to your future self, right? So don't worry about it now. There's nothing you can do about it. Of course, you can't experiment when you have no time. But the point is, I think that maybe to back up one level, you asked me earlier, how do breakthrough thinkers work differently? One thing I would see is they wield their calendar as a weapon. 
They aren't the victim of their calendar. You know, right. Jeff Bezos in the early days, I, I can't help but mention him many times. It's part of the reason we have a bonus chapter on Bezos because the publisher's like, you can't only reference Bezos. <laughs> so put some of that material in a bonus chapter for crying out loud. But yeah. one of the things Bezos did is he blocked two days a week where he had no meetings. Two days a week because he wanted to be able to haunt the halls and he wanted to be able to scroll the internet and a tool go on day. I just heard a great interview between Steven Johnson and he, the author of being mortal. He said a quarter of his time is scheduled, unscheduled time. And I think that that's, that's actually a theme for breakthrough. If you want to be a breakthrough thinker, if you want to be a breakthrough innovator, are you making If you know, at some point in the future, it's going to take time. Are you blocking time in the future? Or are you waiting for the universe to, to lay you off? Is that when you're really going to do some, some wildly creative thing? No, you're going to panic, right? No, the time to do it is block the time now. I, I'll never forget this. For, for me, this moment came so clearly. I um, My folks live in Texas. I have four young daughters. And my folks wanted to do a um, kind of a, a sleepover with the, with the older girls. And so I'm, I have a day where I've got to fly the older girls to Texas and get back for a meeting that night. So it's basically a totally booked day. You know, I'm, I'm on flights and in airports for, you know, 10 hours. I found myself looking forward to that day. I didn't know why. For weeks, I was looking forward to that day. And you know what I realized? A flight day, it's plausible deniability. I can't be on Zoom meetings. And I was so delighted that when I got on the flight, I I read a book about Google for the first half. I think I don't even know what I did for the second half, but it was so reinvigorating. I blocked a flight day, a day per month on my calendar for the rest of the year. I think that's wonderful. That's so good. And I didn't, I, you know, carbon, you know, the, the, to the, to the, to the, um, you know, to the climate concerned among us, I didn't actually book flights, but I treated those days like days I, I was on airplane mode to use Ozan Veral's phrase, which I love. I put myself on airplane mode, which means it's going to be a different kind of day. And it was so invigorating and there's so much agency. And no, you know, you know, who's, who's not bothered by that? My boss hmm. or my team, right? If there's enough lead time, the day's blocked, the day's blocked. Yeah. But instead of it being blocked with a bunch of stuff that I've had to fit in to accommodate, I'm blocking it to accommodate my need for space to synthesize and learn and share and whatever else I do on those days. I think that's really a good practical tip. And for everyone listening in, just do a scan right now of your calendar. What what does it look like? Um, if it looks like a Tetris board, we may have an opportunity here. You know, I, I, Jeremy, what I try to do in my calendar, no, it's more than I try to do. I'm, I'm pretty good at it, actually, of blocking some of that time out. I'll give you an example. On Fridays, I, I've never told anyone this, but on Fridays, I've got uh, five hours blocked every Friday from 11 o'clock on where there's absolutely no meetings. I call it kind of, the, kind of this green wood time. All that means is mm. that if I, want, if I really want to be really building a roaring campfire, right, if I don't recharge, it's just green wood. Right. I need that time to recharge yeah. and reset and yeah. to get my mind right from what just happened during the week. But more importantly, what is to come and how do I prepare and maybe think that through a bit? Thank the other you. thing I might mention, just to give you a compliment, Darren, I, I mean, you and I don't know one another well, just brief correspondence and scheduling this. But one thing I would say is even having a podcast is a hack to get fresh input to your thinking, right? Oh. I think of, I don't know if you've gotten to the point in the book yet where we talk about Ben Franklin's Junto. 
No, I've right, not. If, Tell me. If you, no. if you think it's in one of the later chapters, if I had my druthers, it'd be in one of the earlier chapters, but you know, an author is only one variable in a, in a much larger uh, algebra of what gets prioritized when, but one of my favorite ways to bring in fresh perspective is by way of collaborators. And there's a whole chapter dedicated to how do you diversify your portfolio of collaborators? One of the things that we mentioned is Ben Franklin you know, who, whose, whose breadth of innovation is almost unparalleled in his life. You think about, he's the foremost author and statesman and inventor from bifocals to the lightning rod to the Continental Congress, right? He's yes. all, he mapped the Gulf Stream, <laughs> you know, he's all over the place. How did he do it? If I just had fire departments to my credit, I think I'd be, you know, I'd call my, I'd call it a day, right? Yeah. Well, one of the things we discovered in researching his life is every week for 30 years, he met with his Junto, which was a leather aprons club of other artisans who would gather on a weekly basis to discuss matters relevant to their businesses, not in his group, not in his organization, but outside of his organization. He would meet with other folks and they would talk about things like, one, has anyone moved to Philadelphia who we ought to know? Oh, you know two, that. has anyone's business failed recently and for what reason? Three, are there any discoveries in the sciences that have bearing on our businesses, right? And they would go through these questions and people would, would prepare and they'd bring inspiration. No wonder Ben Franklin had such a wide range of innovation, right? He's very deliberate about cultivating input on a regular basis. And I see something like what you're doing, even with the podcast, it's a little bit of a different format, but it is a structural way of bringing fresh thinking into your, I mean, especially listeners as well, but your own mind. And a listener might think, yeah, I listen to a podcast on a run. What about, th what about thinking about hosting a podcast? Not that you ever have to publish it or something, but is there a regular rhythm in your life for seeking input and inspiration from outside of your domain, outside of your industry, outside of your world. It's true. You know, that's, I, I love the podcast because of that. I meet so many cool people. In fact, you're one of them now, but uh, Lecrae, I kid you not, I've been trying to get Lecrae on the podcast and I've been unsuccessful. So no um, way I can see if I can help. You know what? I would, there again, who do you think I should know in Philadelphia? Could you introduce me to Lecrae? <laughs> you got it. No worries. Happy to. So your podcast, The Paint and Pipette, I remember in the introduction of it, I think you talked about how you treat this podcast as, as your yeah. own classroom. And this That's is one right. of your strategies, right? That's right. Absolutely. hundred percent. Now I, I find it's interesting. Nobody else prioritizes my learning. <laughs> Wait a minute. That's, I think we just hit a truth bomb here. Tell me more about that. I think I like what you're saying. <laughs> if you think about like, whose job is it for you to learn? Right. It's your job, right? right? Nobody's going, you know what? I've really had a burden to make sure that you're, you keep learning, you know, I mean, maybe a spectacular manager, like a truly world-class manager, right? For me, what I found, and not to say anything disparaging about my managers, they're wonderful people. But for me, what I found is the work will continue. You know, the work never stops. And I'm the one who has to take the, uh, the, the burden of proof, so to speak, is on me to make space for learning. If I don't carve out deliberate time for learning, people are happy to have me in another meeting and contribute to another project and things like that. That's a whole nother podcast right there. An organization, a company, I, I love companies. I love profit. That's what makes the world go around. But they 
they view you as a resource, right? And, and right. so even the best organizations, so you do have to manage your own career and your own learning. So thank you for that. In the book, you talk about in a really good parable way about the tale of two leaders, Jim and Jen. Yes. If you don't mind, give, give us just a, a, a few, few minutes on, on the difference between these, these two leaders, because it really resonated with me about the type of leader that I strive to be. Well, it's, it's, it's a contrast between someone who's frantically putting out fires, who's constantly responding and reacting, and someone who, with a little bit of intentionality, is ahead of the fire. This is, you know, an ounce of prevention beats a pound of cure kind of a thing, right? And there are ways that we can approach our days and approach our the rhythms of our lives and our practices where we are in almost a preventative mode in a good way, rather than being in a cure mode. And the cure mode is frantic and painful and exhausting. And the prevention mode is actually exhilarating and replenishing and refreshing. Again, the tendency, like I've, I've heard it said, the tendency of the garden is toward the wilderness. And I think there's something similar here. The tendency of organizational life is toward frantic fire extinguishing. But with careful cultivation, yes. we can enter into this, into this preventative mode, which is much more invigorating, uh, effective, and ultimately successful. You, you made a point in the book that as leaders, as you think about your organization, in fact, a rhetorical question, those are listening, how creative is your organization? And if you really think that, yeah, you know, my organization is not that, not that creative, maybe my industry is not that creative or you perceive it to be, but you make the point in the book that it's up to you as a leader to really set the pace. And if you want to be, if you want to work with a creative organization, well, then you as a leader ought to then start using some of these creative practices and this idea, idea generation yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you have a leaders have an incredible opportunity to model good behavior and they can do so very simply. You know, for example, here's here's one I love. Bob McKim, progenitor of the design program at Stanford. Anytime somebody came to him for feedback, he would say the same thing. You know what it was? No. Say show me 3. Show me 3. 3 very ideas. Simple. Three different things. Somebody wants feedback on a thing, on a project, a solution, an idea. His default was to bias towards alternatives and mm-hmm. volume. I talked to Astro Teller recently, the head of Google X. His thing is, show me five. He wants to see five. And what Astro said, I think it's fascinating. He said, teams at Google X now have started to kind of sandbag and they've kind of, they bring dummy ideas because they know that I'm going to want to see volume. But he said, the thing they don't realize is, Many times their dummy ideas are every bit as good as the one idea that they were planning on sharing with me. <laughs> so good. But it's just simple. There are simple things. I mean, another question I would challenge leaders to ask themselves is, when's the last time someone's shared a stupid idea with me? And, and, and by, I'll, I'll tell you a story because I think it illustrates a point and it illustrates a counterpoint. My father is a very successful litigator. He's arguing a case before the Supreme Court. Hmm. And a young attorney who's probably two years out of school, my dad's got decades of experience. You know, this young attorney opens his door. They're in the middle of preparing their briefs for the Supreme Court. And the young attorney shuts the door and he says, okay, Mr. Utley, 
I'm either about to say the dumbest thing that any attorney's ever said, or this is what's going to win us the case. <laughs> and my dad said that boneheads argument won us the case. <laughs> and he said, and, and to me, what, what I found, he didn't say bonehead, by the way, that's my word. He would never say yeah. that. But my, but, but my point is, I, we, he and I, my dad and I were actually talking about the value of a novice perspective, which is a separate thing altogether. The point here for leaders is, are you a safe person for someone to come and share a potentially stupid idea? Or are they going to get torn apart? Because how dare you share some kind of harebrained idea with me? And what I would say is, there are two answers to that question. When's the last time someone shared a stupid idea with you? One, an honest answer is probably, I can't remember the last time. In which case I would invite this leader to consider what might I do to make it safe to share unformed rough work with me. But there's another kind of person who says all the time happens. all People are sharing stupid ideas with me left and right. In which case I would say, you're a jerk. <laughs> and that you're not safe either. Right. <laughs> because I'm not asking whether you think their idea is stupid. I'm asking whether they think their idea is stupid. Right. And if you're the kind of person who someone is willing to share even something they feel might be stupid with, that's an accomplishment. That's what my dad did. That's good. That's really good. So there's another practical challenge we can have for everyone listening. Be that type of leader. It's not to say that we're always deferring judgment or that we're, or that we're constantly indulging um, bad ideas. Yeah. But the question is, in a generative mode, when we acknowledge what we need are fresh solutions, what is the default disposition of the leader or of the team member? Is it my job is to evaluate contributions or is it my job is to build on contributions? Mm, that's well said. And most people are terrified by the idea of building on it because I don't want to humor them, right? I don't right. want to give them the wrong idea. And what, what you don't realize is in a generative mode, things tend to spiral almost positively where you leave behind the thing that maybe you were afraid to, uh, to affirm, but you end up in this actually really rich space of possibility that you never would have arrived in if you had just shut it down. Right. And that's really what people don't get. Ideas are not something that is just out of thin air. I mean, you are connect, you're connecting different things and I'm, I'm butchering your main point. So, but yeah, it, yeah. it was eye-opening for me. And I'll let you explain what that is because it relieves some of the pressure off mm -hmm. of me. And I hope it does for others as well. Uh, do you know the point I'm talking about? I think yeah, 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 of course, of course. Well, there's this, there's this, uh, paralyzing question that comes to most people's minds if they get into an idea generation mode, which is what's the creative thing to say? You know, how can I make a creative contribution? And what we have learned from some amazing practitioners of design, some improvisation leaders, one, one of our colleagues named Dan Klein is a world-class improviser. And he says, don't try to be creative, try to be obvious. Instead of saying the best thing, everybody wants to put wins on the board. Say the next thing that comes to your mind. Wow. And when you're in a generative mode, I, I, and accept no. Don't say no. Okay. But once you know that your job is to not shut down the, the, the kind of stream or the movement of ideas, then recognize that your challenge is not to be creative. It's just to say what's obvious to you. Because the thing is that the amazing thing about, you know, Arthur Kessler, another very useful definition of creativity is creativity is the collision of apparently unrelated frames of reference. 
which is another fantastic definition. Not as good as the seventh grader in Ohio, but hey, he's a Hungarian philosopher. What can you do? Um, but the point is, you and I have different frames of reference. Creativity, the, the, the space for creativity to emerge is actually the collision of our frames of reference. Right. And all you have to do to be a part of that collision is not be creative. No, the, the collision is what's creative. You just have to be obvious. And what's obvious to you, if I say something, when you say what's obvious to you, you know what I think? I think, wow, that was really creative. Why? Because what's obvious to you isn't obvious to me, right? And then, <laughs> right. If, and then if I have a goal of not being creative, but being obvious, when you say the thing that was obvious to you, which is creative to me, I will respond with the thing that's obvious to me. It's going to be creative to you. I'd like that. Jeremy, uh, I was looking through um, the Amazon reviews of your book, which are unbelievable. So many positive reviews. But one of your students actually wrote something. I'm not sure if you know this, but I, but I want to give this because it's a great example of, of how people are using this in their life. And then I have a follow-up He question. says, I readily credit much of my own success in business and in life, the ideas they taught in their classes, which is a large part of the group. Here's an example he, he gave. 2009 in D School Boot Camp, co-taught by Jeremy, tasked to come up with 50 ideas to improve the ramen experience, like the kind you go to a restaurant. I got stuck at number right. six, went for a run, pumped out 20 more, stopped again at number 26, grabbed two friends for a 10-minute brainstorm, got to four, number 43, number 43, slept on it, coffeeed up in the morning, ended up at number 72. 60 of those ideas were pretty weird. Six were pretty interesting, and the six were game-changing. Those six were numbers 13, 24, 28, 51, 62, and 70, not the first 12. Wow. Is, there, is there research then that backs up that the first idea that you come up with or ideas are generally speaking not the best or am I going a bridge too far? The, uh, that is the kind of question I love, Darren, by the way. <laughs> There's no evidence whatsoever that suggests that early ideas are better ideas. Um, there is there is a, a great paper called the creative cliff illusion. You can look into it if you want. But the, the basic gist of that paper is that most people perceive their creativity will hit a kind of precipitous drop at some point that it's the cliff, right? They yeah. call it the illusion because the truth is there is no cliff. For a lot of people, actually, there's what they refer to as a creative ramp or what I've referred to as I've envisioned as a creative ramp where your creativity can actually increase over time, not decrease. Um, the thing that is really fascinating, two things I'd say. One, the single biggest impact to the quality of someone's ideas in this experiment was when they expected their best ideas to come. If they expected their best ideas to come early, they had worse ideas overall. If they, and the, to the degree that they expected better ideas to keep coming, the more they expected that, the better their ideas were. Is that right? So that's a pretty fascinating finding. I think it was something like 7% better for every degree of expectation. They'd have better ideas, right? Which yeah. is fascinating. Um, the second thing I would say is um, going back to your question about, is there evidence that, that the first ideas are the, are the best or not the best, which there is not. The other thing I'd say is there is strong evidence that the human tendency, the cognitive tendency, it's called the Einstilling effect. But the Einstilling effect has been demonstrated, was proven by um, Abraham Luchens in 1942. It was, it was demonstrated again by Carl Dunker and by researchers at Oxford. But the Einstilling effect demonstrates that a human's tendency when they think of a solution to a problem is to cease the search and to become blinded to better ideas. Oh. 
And so while there's no evidence that suggests that our early ideas are the best, there is a lot of evidence that suggests that the tendency is to fixate upon early ideas to the exclusion of any others. What is, what is the best way to follow you and stay in touch with all the cool projects and things that you and your team are working on? Well, I've got a blog where I write every single day uh, on my personal website called jeremyutley.design. And I try to make a blog post every day. Sometimes I get a little behind, but I'll catch up. But if you go there, you can find all sorts of interesting projects, things like that. Uh, we've also got a book website, ideaflow.design. And as I mentioned right now, we've got a free bonus chapter there called How to Think Like Bezos and Jobs. And then, of course, the usual suspects in terms of LinkedIn, I'm just slash Jeremy Utley. Twitter, I'm slash Jeremy Utley. And I, I try to be somewhat active. I try to be somewhat responsive as well. The book has kind of um, has introduced me to a whole lot of new friends, which is a lot of fun. So if I'm yeah. slow in responding, it's only because I don't have an assistant responding. I'm actually doing it myself. So I'll get to it. But I, I'm delighted to get a chance to interact with other learners. You know, as you said this about my podcast, I would say I like to consider myself to be a front row student in one of the world's most interesting classrooms. Mm-hmm. And I have found it incredibly invigorating for fellow learners, fellow aficionados of the craft to share their experience and, and articles and references because it gives me stuff to dig into. And, it, and it, that's what bonds new friendships with me. So everyone should feel free to reach out. I love hearing from people who've listened to a podcast or read the book or read a blog post. It's good. I can test that. You do answer your own emails. I appreciated that very much. Absolutely. Jeremy, what is it that you hope someone would think or do differently as a result of reading this fantastic book? Well, a couple of things come to my mind immediately. One is that they would find opportunities to flex their creativity every single day. They'd find opportunities to flex their innovation muscle or even become aware of it as a muscle. One simple thing I would ask listeners to do is say, what's the last breakthrough I had? Try to think of the last time you were you surprised yourself by an idea and then do this. Try to map the diagram the process. How did you arrive at that? A lot of times there's a really interesting epiphany for people. If they will diagram their last breakthrough, they go, oh, it's when I was talking to that stranger on the bus. And then my question is, have you operationalized that? <laughs> do you therefore now talk to strangers on the bus? Most people go, oh, no, I haven't. No. Do, well, I? do you wonder why you aren't breaking through more often, right? <laughs> I'm not so weird. Kind of, why would I talk to people, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just, it was that random time. That one time I did led to this fascinating idea. It's like, well, how about you do that more often, right? Yeah. So that's kind of one thing is become aware of it yourself. And the other thing is stop treating innovation like it's, I mean, certainly not a department, which you and I talked about earlier, the creative department, but also like it's a point in time. A lot of talk in organizations is about the hackathon or the sprint or the workshop. And anytime there's a time, you know, dedicated to creativity, you know what the corollary is? Hmm. The rest of the time, we're not meant to be creative. Of course. Of course. The rest of the time isn't for ideas. Ideas are when we go to the hackathon. They're right. when we go to the sprint, right? And that is a very destructive prospect. If you'll start to see simply going back to the definition we've now referenced a few times, creativity is doing more than the first thing you think of. And then the second point is every time you're trying to solve a problem, you're coming up with solutions. You can practice being more creative by generating more solutions to any problem. It's just, it's just like flexing the, 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 the gallon, the gallon of milk dumbbell curl. See the times you're trying to solve a problem as an opportunity to flex. At the very least, you're going to make the muscle stronger, which is the important thing. 
At the very most, you're going to identify a way better solution that you wouldn't have thought of had you not taken a moment to do a couple curls. That's good. Great advice. You've given us a lot to think about here, Jeremy. We've covered a lot of topics. Uh, the folks are listening have big goals in their life. They want to do some special things. What advice do you have for them or what challenge do you have for them? Find a problem you care about. I, I feel the single greatest enemy to innovation is apathy. If you don't care, don't bother. Hmm. And to me, a lot of innovation can be traced back to someone cultivating an irritation. Seinfeld says that's where all of his good jokes come from is things that, that right? bother him. He has a highly really? sensitive personality, right? He said, yeah. then you become rich and you start to insulate yourself from those annoyances, but then you have children and you have all new material, right? That's his joke. But you know, one of the assignments we've given at Stanford for 60 plus years is keep a bug list, write down a list of things that bother you, what bugs you. And a lot of times that's the seeds of innovation. And if you're finding it difficult to innovate in your current environment, it may be because you haven't found a problem that you actually care to solve. That's a great perspective. Thank you. And it's something we can all uh, take action on. So, Jeremy, thank you for being here on the podcast. It was fun talking to you. We could talk for hours. Totally. But we'll save totally. that maybe for uh, another date. But it was a pleasure to meet you. And thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, that was Jeremy Utley. What an opportunity we just had to hear from one of the world's leading experts in innovation, an award-winning professor at the world-renowned Stanford D School. All right, here's the question. What will be the one or two things that you plan on implementing in your life? For me, I'm going to start writing down all my ideas and keeping a tally of those. That really connected with me. I always have these ideas that come into my head and then they leave my head and they just kind of come back on a loop like a day later. I never write them down. But I think if I write them down and I capture them, that's where the idea flow for me is really going to kick in. I think it's going to help me personally and also professionally. How about for you? What do you want to do with this conversation? I would challenge you to, uh, who are you going to share this episode with? At least two or three people. It could be family and friends or colleagues. If you're in business, maybe it's the executive team where you're really stuck on a problem and maybe the solution is right in front of you. It's about idea flow. Or perhaps you've been thinking about getting your MBA, maybe an executive MBA. And this is the type of thought-provoking discussion that just intellectually feels so good. Share that with someone else. Also now, make sure you follow me on Instagram, at DarrenJohnson1. Also, you can follow this podcast on Instagram, at IDareYouPod. There you'll find content you won't find anywhere else. And now get ready for episode 42, another great guest that will spark new ways of thinking for you. I'll see you right back here next week. I'll see you then.